Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. I'm honored to be with you tonight, and thank you again for joining us on the show that respects your intelligence, that honors you as a citizen, and that brings you the stories that the mainstream media is so often simply not willing to cover. You know, it's pretty striking how quickly the narrative from the left and the mainstream media has changed. It started right after the election. They simply said, the election is over, and they, the media, decided that Joe Biden won. Accept it, they said. But Americans had questions. Some things just didn't seem right. And the mainstream media said there's no evidence of voter fraud. Well, then American citizens across the country and the president's legal team began to provide evidence that something at least irregular was going on here. And then the mainstream media narrative changed once again to they said there's no evidence of widespread voter fraud. But the American people kept digging president's lawyers kept working. Hundreds of affidavits from across the country were filed and brave Americans stepped forward, first-hand witnesses who bravely spoke out about what they saw take place on election day. Now, what did the mainstream media and the left do with this information? Well, they moved the goalposts once again, and now their message is there's no evidence from credible sources of widespread voter fraud. Well, take a listen to whistleblower Gregory Stenstrom, and you decide if he's credible. My name is Gregory Stenstrom. I'm from Delaware County. I'm a father, a family man. I was a former commanding officer and executive officer in the Navy. I'm a veteran of foreign wars. I'm the CEO of my own private company. I'm a data scientist. I'm a forensic computer scientist. I'm an expert in security and fraud. Well, now we are thrilled to be joined by Gregory Stenstrom himself. Uh, Gregory, good day. First of all, thank you for your service to the country. Go Navy. We appreciate having you on. <laughs> and Gregory, thank you very much, Governor. You bet. you bet. For our viewers who haven't heard your testimony yet, let's just begin, begin here. Where were you on Election Day, and what did you see? I was, uh, the first part of the day, I was in uh, the city of Chester, which is in uh, Delaware County. Uh, we're just south of uh, Philadelphia. Uh, we have 425,000 registered voters in the county, and the city of Chester is about 40,000. So I spent the, the first part of the day there, and um, you know, saw, saw some irregularities, mm -hmm. but for the most part, uh, that was the most interesting part of the day. About six o'clock in the evening, I went to the centralized voting center, and uh, <clears throat> like several other places and counties, uh, which were strategic in the country, the voting center was a remote building, um, <clears throat> not easily observable. And uh, we got there at uh, six o'clock. I got there with a few other people, um, poll watchers and observers. And it took us five hours to get into the uh, counting area. We were wow. refused access and we had to get uh, legal assistance from uh, the Project Amistad group uh, that's uh, part of the Thomas More Society. So they helped us get in. Um, we got up there at 11 p.m. at night 
sorry, a number of different regularities. But in a nutshell, uh, about 120,000 ballots, uh, I think, uh, are, should not be certified. I don't know how anyone in good conscience could certify 120,000 ballots, which are comprised of uh, 50,000 ballots that I saw personally, uh, a person who was not part of the process, who should not have been loading the USB sticks into the computers to change the vote. Uh, it was the voting warehouse uh, supervisor who came in with a, a couple of dozen USB sticks. And then uh, we also saw 70,000 unopened mail-in ballots that uh, supposedly had already been counted. So the question was, was where did the votes come from? Where did these 50,000 votes come from, from the USB sticks? Where did the 70,000 ballots go? And uh, how do we get 120,000 votes for uh, Vice President Biden that uh, are questionable? So that's, that's it yeah. in a nutshell. Hopefully it's a summarizing of the testimony you saw in uh, Gettysburg. You bet, you bet. And Gregory, I just want to break this down for, for our audience a little bit. First, talk about, you said that you were refused entrance for five hours. On what grounds were they refusing you entrance? I mean, part of everyone knows by now, the idea is that you want to have election observers in there from both parties to ensure a fair election. Why were they refusing you entrance? The Delaware County Election Board is uh, predominantly is uh, two members are Democrat and one members are Republican. Mm -hmm. And over the last couple of months uh, during uh, they were trying to scale up for for um, adjust for COVID and uh, consolidate polling locations and consolidate procedures. So the procedures were uh, what was the problem? They weren't they weren't followed. They weren't well communicated. I was the sole poll watcher for uh, Senator Killian. Uh, he was an incumbent. He was defeated. But I was the sole poll watcher that he had uh, that uh, went down to the county, the sole poll watcher he had down in the city of Chester. So um, beforehand, unlike previous elections where we could just go down as a representative and, you know, basically, you know, have a letter from the candidate himself. Um, this year, uh, the Delaware County Election Board required everyone be certified. So I had to be a, I was a certified poll watcher. I received a certificate with, you know, sure. it's notarized by them. So when I got there, um, you know, I was supposed to go in, but apparently there'd been a procedure change that no one knew about. And we had a list that was, I called it the double secret probation list, which they only allowed uh, a couple of dozen people up. And I was unaware of that and they wouldn't even let us know. So when I first got there, uh, you know, they wouldn't even, uh, it was pretty, pretty aggressive. Uh, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was hostile. Mm -hmm. And it took us five hours, like I said, the lawyer to get in and straighten out and, and get on that double secret probation list, which uh, only had a couple of dozen people on it. And, um, and no one was aware of that. And then, Gregory, talk about once you got in, a breakdown for our audience, exactly what you saw happen and what should have been happening with these these USB sticks that, that have this this data on them. Well, there's two, there's two phases to that. In the election evening, the USB sticks, uh, there's three things that are collected from every voting machine. USB stick, a hard drive cartridge, and a paper tape. Paper tape is uh, the analog representation of what was on the two electronic devices. The cartridges, the uh, hard drive cartridges are kept aside uh, to verify the USB sticks in future tabulations and if there's any disputes. So what happens, supposed to happen is uh, the election officials, the judge of elections, are supposed to take the ballots, they take the USB stick, they take the cartridge, they take the paper tape, they put them all in one bag, they seal it, they put a, put a tag on it, a green tag, and they put a custody sheet on it, and that's what's supposed to go to the voting mm -hmm. center. That, none of that happened. What happened was at about 1130 at night, uh, the sheriffs came in and they had a 
basically a big tub, a Tupperware tub with uh, little baggies of uh, cartridges, USB stick and a paper tape. And I said, whoa, stop. What are you, what are you doing? And mm -hmm. they said, where do they come from? Where's the custody sheets? You know, where's the bags? Yeah. Where, you know, how do I know where these came from? And they said, well, we collected these at three places within the um, within the county. And uh, for ease of convenience, uh, just tonight, which they didn't do during the primaries, just for tonight, we put everything in a tub for convenience for transportation. I said, well, this doesn't work for me. I objected to the senior law enforcement agents uh, uh, officer there who was a deputy sheriff, and I objected to the clerk of elections, made every objection I could, and I said, hey, this is the way we're doing it. You're an observer. You can't interfere. So to make matters worse, they take the bags, and then they start. They take the USB stick, the cartridge, and the paper, and they split it all up. They throw it in the cardboard boxes, and I said, wow. hey, what are you doing? You're, you're breaking the forensic uh, auditability. Uh, how are we ever going to put these together? At least keep the baggies together. You know, put the USB stick in the machine, put it back in the baggie with the cartridge and the tape. So if we have a dispute later, right. I can at least, I don't have to go digging through the box. So they did that uh, for the better part of the night. Uh, we have 428 precincts. They counted 396 or so they said uh, what was up there. And um, that was just a disaster. There was no forensic accountability. It was forensically destructive. Uh, it was unconscionable. They didn't follow any of their procedures. Well, the next day and then the day after, the voting supervisor, the warehouse of the voting machine shows up with the baggies. And we have photos of these. We have right. photos and video uh, that we were able to capture, even though they were very, very uh, uh, surreptitious in the way they did it. You know, he had a baggie of USB drives, you know, holding by his side. And then he goes up to the machines and uh, starts loading them in. And I saw this and I said, stop. Again, it was it was just uh, crazy. And I said to the deputy sheriff again, I said, hey, Mike, you got to go and get uh, uh, Lorraine Hagan, who was the clerk of elections. Mm -hmm. Go get Lorraine. This can't happen. So he brought her out again. And I said, Lorraine, why is uh, is the Jim? I'm not going to say his name here only yeah. because of what his title is. Sure. But I said, why is uh, he loading these? And she said, you're here to observe and you can't interfere. And I said, well, I object. I've got a guy who's not part of the process. This is not in the election procedures we said we would do, loading USB sticks in. Well, he kept going, and he just had his head down. He ignored us. Uh, I objected vigorously, and then when he was done, I said, I want to see the voting update. Uh, they, they had a screen yeah. there where they updated the votes. So it took them about an hour before they finally complied, and I don't think they wanted to, but I remember the time distinctly. It was 1.06, the vote was updated. And during the interim from the morning and the time, and nothing else happened. During this time period, he was loading USB sticks. Vice President Biden gained 50,000 votes from wow. those USBs. Now, later, they said, you know, you'll see some things and some uh, some people refuted uh, my testimony and refuted what I said. And I said, well, this is easy. I begged the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, in Philadelphia, spoke to them directly. I begged the Pennsylvania Attorney General's Office. I begged anybody with a badge to come down. I says, all you need to do is get the forensic images of the computers. Yeah. You can prove me wrong. They'll show when the USB sticks were plugged in. And I said, get the USB sticks. Every USB stick has got a, is encrypted and tied to the voting machine. I says, all you have to do is produce this and then you can prove me wrong. 
I so appreciate you stepping forward, appreciate you explaining all of this to our audience in, in great detail. Folks, that's Gregory Stenstrom, American Patriot, a whistleblower who has stepped forward to let all of us know about what happened in Pennsylvania. We'll be right back. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Well, welcome back to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. There's a story out of Breitbart News today from Dr. A.W.R. Hawkins. As you know, the nation's eyes are on Georgia, where the U.S. Senate is hanging in the balance. And in that race, Democrat Raphael Warnock is taking heat for some comments he's made in his past about the right of conservatives to carry guns in houses of worship. Now, United States Navy SEAL Eli Crane made this video in response. It's a good one. Take a listen and I just can't sit by and watch it anymore. I make these videos because I no longer wear a uniform anymore, but I still feel a desire and an obligation to fight for this country. And I see it. We need fighters now more than we ever have. We need men with backbone more than we ever have. Evil always triumphs when good men do nothing and I just can't sit by and watch it anymore. That's why when I hear these guys, these wannabe leaders and politicians like Raphael Warnock in a sermon, no less, making fun of Christians who want to carry a firearm into church, serving a party, talking about defunding the police. I mean, it's like these guys could care less about we the people, you and me. I can't stand to listen to their divisive rhetoric or their policies that destroy prosperity, our freedoms, our liberties, and our ability to protect ourselves. Well, joining us now to talk about the race in Georgia, about the Second Amendment, and also about this viral video is United States Navy SEAL Eli Crane and Breitbart journalist Dr. A.W.R. Hawkins. Guys, great to have you on. Thanks, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Eli, let, let's start with you, man. One of the things that you quoted there is that evil triumphs where good men do nothing. You serve this country as a Navy SEAL. You're not in uniform any longer, but you still feel like you need to serve. Talk about why you felt like it was so important to come out and talk about the Second Amendment here. Well, Eric, I think something you might remember from the teams, we had a saying that calm is contagious. Yeah, man. Fortunately, the there's a lot of things that are contagious. Fear is contagious and courage is also contagious. And I just see, I look around the national landscape and I don't see a lot of men um, with integrity and courage stepping up mm -hmm. and doing the right thing. I see a lot of people erring on the side of their own personal careers and trying to take the easy road. And we're, this country is in a lot of trouble. And if we don't have more men with integrity that stand on principle who step up and you know, go against cancel culture, go against, you know, this left wing mob that's trying to destroy this country from within so they can rebuild it into some, you know, utopia, liberal utopia. Uh, we're going to lose it. And I refuse, regardless of the outcome, I refuse to sit back and watch it burn without standing up and fighting for it. 
Awesome. I know so many Americans feel the same way, and a lot of our, our viewers do. A-Dub, I'm going to uh, make you put the Ph.D. to work here, all right? And I'm going to ask you from a, from a historical perspective, like, we're at a really important point in terms of the Second Amendment. I mean, the left's argument had always been, well, you don't need to have guns to defend yourself because the police are going to come. And now they spent the entire summer talking about how they wanted to defund the police. Put us in perspective here. We've got this race in Georgia, but from a historical perspective, how important is this race and how important is this moment in American history? This moment, uh, Eric, is singular in many ways. And uh, you look, we just we just secured what you might call a 6-3 pro-Second Amendment majority on the Supreme Court. In reality, that's probably a 5-4 majority, so that's pretty slim. Uh, but you have a party in the Democrat Party that openly talks about packing the court. If they can get control of the Senate, they want to expand the number of justices from nine to, say, 13 or 18. Mm -hmm. And that will immediately overwhelm the pro-Second Amendment majority. Not only that, you have people openly talking. As you say, uh, the Democrat Party has long had plans, but they, they kind of try to run secretive on those plans, but not now. Now you have John Ossoff in. In Georgia, he's running openly on banning semi-automatic rifles. He wants anyone who owns a semi-automatic pistol to have to get a license to hold on to that. He wants to criminalize private gun sales. He wants to go after the quote-unquote gun show loophole, which we all know is non-existent. I could keep going, but the bottom line is, if you look at it historically, what you have here is you have a group of Hardcore ideologues, not just Democrats anymore, right. but they've taken right. the party to the position of ideologue. And if they can get the Senate, then they have the tools they need between the White House and the Senate to run roughshod over the Supreme Court and then over the Second Amendment. And with the court gone, there's nothing to stop them. Yeah. And, and Eli, talk a little bit, if you would, please, about why for you it's so important for you, your family, to be able to defend themselves. I mean, why are you such a strong fighter for, for the Second Amendment in particular? You know, for me, it's not clearly, obviously, my, my role as husband and father is to protect my family. But for me, this is so much bigger. This is about Americans everywhere. Um, you know, it's like there has always been evil. There always will be evil. We need to be able to protect ourselves. But the thing that I'm most concerned about, even more so than um, the Second Amendment, though, though that is really important, is you really have two sides to this. You have a side that's fighting for, you know, out for blood, and you have a side that acts like they're not even in a fight. And we better wake up as Americans and realize what's going down in this country right now. And I hate, I, I'm not trying to be an alarmist, but a lot of us are watching this and and we're watching this in complete disgust and just blown away at what's what's going on um, with the Democrat Party. This isn't a party of JFK. We're not talking about big taxes, little taxes anymore. We're talking about some really radical, extreme stuff. And they're they're like I said, they're playing for keeps. Um, the masks are off. And if we don't if we don't stand up and fight for and conserve you know, the values and liberties and freedoms and the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, it, it won't be more than a generation before we're completely done. And that's why it's so important for me to sound off. Yeah, well, look, we do, we know on this show, we hear from viewers every day who feel like we need to have people who are standing up, who are fighting. There's a lot of attention focused right now uh, on Georgia. A-Dub, give us 
Give, give our viewers, if you would, just a sense for what you're seeing right now as you've been looking at the race in Georgia itself. How are things shaping up there? Well, I mean, I think you have to look at this. You, you said a while ago, historically, historically. Mm -hmm. If we want to look at this with recent history, just look at the presidential election. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone really saw what happened November 3rd and 4th coming in Georgia. I mean, I was talking to people on the ground in big groups uh, who are respectable, pro-gun and pro-liberty uh, groups. And even as I spoke to them, I didn't see this coming from what they were saying. And so what I think we have to do is we have to keep our short-term memories alive here too, not just our long-term and understand that Eli's, Eli's spot on. If we're not willing to fight right now, particularly now, between now and, July, and January 5th, and get this message out, our freedom is at stake. And, and I always center on Second Amendment because I, I write about Second Amendment and I believe that without the Second Amendment, you can take all the rest of them and have all the good wishes you want, but you can't back them up. So the Second Amendment's critical. It, it's the hinge on which the door of liberty swings. That's how I like to say it. They're all gone if we lose January 5th. And, and if you're sitting comfortably the way Eli described, if you're disgusted but not disgusted enough to put down your drink and get out of your recliner, understand this. Come January 5th, if you mess that one up, if it turns out the way November 3rd and 4th turned out, it's too late then. Then we have at least two years where a Democrat administration has unbridled access to trample our liberty and freedom. That's what we're up against. Yeah, and I think one of the things that people saw over the course of the whole summer is that as they watch this defund the police movement, as they watch violence and looting in cities across the country, as they saw people engaged in arson who weren't punished, this basic idea that the government is supposed to help to protect your life, your liberty, your property, like a lot of people started to question the whether or not the government was really committed to doing that. And we saw our guys on the front line, police officers who were out there, the major cities uh, police chiefs just came out and said that we actually had thousands of officers who were injured over the course of the summer. Eli, I know how important it is to you uh, to make sure that the guys on the front lines always know that you have uh, their, their backs. Talk a little bit about how, you, how important you think it is to be supporting our, our law enforcement officers in a time like this. I mean, it's it's absolutely paramount. I know many of us patriots have watched just in utter horror as um, these uh, Democrat-run cities have fallen into chaos and anarchy and also watch the mainstream media only yeah. report when our police officers, you know, get caught in a situation, you know, that's a, that's a tough one, even when sometimes they do do something that's you know, wrong or unjustifiable, but they never cover, you know, the 99.999% of the calls that they go out on that they do a flawless job right. on. And it just right. bothers us because, you know, some of us that have carried a gun around the world, you know, and, uh, you know, tried to fight evil every day, understand how difficult it is and how you get into situations that aren't always black and white. There's a lot of gray areas. You have to make snap decisions with the information that you have. You don't have the luxury of getting to see something from 57 different <laughs> angles. And it's just like, I know that like in the police force, just like in the SEAL teams, just like in every other um, occupation in the world, you're going to have some bad apples. Those guys and gals need to be dealt with. Mm -hmm. But if we lose 
the confidence of our police, if they don't think that we have our backs anymore, not only are they not going to show up when we need them, but you can kiss, you know, you can kiss, uh, you know, our society goodbye because there will be no more order. Awesome. Well, guys, it is so good to have you both on. Again, folks, it's Eli Crane. Check out his company, Bottle Breacher, and Dr. A.W.R. Hawkins. Check out the writing that he's doing on the Second Amendment and other issues there uh, at Breitbart. Very much appreciate both of you um, being on. And if you do want to take action, let your friends know that you're out at justthenews.com, that you're getting stories from the mainstream media here at Real America's Voice uh, that, that the mainstream media is often ignoring. We'll be back in a minute. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome back to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Reitens. While big tech companies continue to do well, and many at the top of the economic food chain are profiting, many small businesses and average American workers continue to struggle. Millions of our fellow Americans remain out of work, and now politicians are engaging in many places in another round of closing businesses. Um, some of these politicians have hypocritically been out dining themselves and then told you that you can't. They've been pleased to frequent high-dollar dinners with lobbyists, but then turn around and close your favorite local restaurant. I'd like to welcome in my next guest. She's the Chief Communications Officer of the Job Creators Network, an expert in all things small business, not to mention a great friend of the show, Elaine Parker. Elaine, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. You bet. Hey, I wanted to start here. Your team at the Job Creators Network um, is working on, you've actually had a piece out for a while now called Flatten the Fear. I'd love to play this, this video and then get your, your thoughts on it. I know how hard this shutdown has been on families and our society. I'm confident that the time has come for us to start opening up our communities. Because we know who is at low risk, we can let these individuals get back to work. We also know which groups are at highest risk and can focus our resources on protecting them. It's time for Main Street to reopen. For more information, go to flattenthefear.com. All right, Elaine, tell us about this message about flattening the fear and how relevant it is uh, right now. Well, we launched Flatten the Fear a few months ago, and the, the point of it was we were working with physicians across the mm -hmm. country who are experts in treating COVID and understanding um, how these cases were impacting um, society, but not just the virus itself, but how the shutdowns were impacting our kids right. and the overall societal costs. And so what we did was we put a microphone in front of physicians to get them out there and, and help educate um, society basically on how we could be safe, how we could um, isolate the few, the people who are in the populations that are um, very vulnerable, but how we as society could reopen um, and get back to work and get our kids back in school. And a lot of it was get our kids back in school. That's the first stepping point to reopening society. And we get our jobs back 
and we get parents working and paychecks flowing again. And so a lot of that was, was a domino effect. And we've been working very hard um, at getting those voices heard. Yeah, I, I think it is so important because, as you and many others have pointed out, is that there are a lot of effects to closing small businesses. Um, I work with a lot of veterans who are coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, and when people lose their job, when people have to close their business, it has effects on people, not just on their pocketbook, it also has effects on their, on their health. It's so good to have uh, physicians out there talking about this message. If you could, give our viewers just a sense, because you've got a sense of working with job creators all over the country, especially with small businesses. Give them a sense for what these shutdowns mean for a lot of our small businesses around the country. Look, these shutdowns have been devastating. And in some states, it's worse than others. Mm. Um, and they've been much longer uh, than others. Um, and and the, the thing that's been the lifesaver, the lifeline for small businesses um, was the passage of the CARES Act and the Paycheck Protection Program. One of the most successful government relief programs we've probably ever seen in the history of this country was the Paycheck Protection Program, which provided uh, forgivable loans to small businesses to help uh, keep their employees attached to the business, mm. help keep them paid and help keep their lights on. Um, but that program expired in August with actually $130 billion still appropriated into the, into the plan, into the program, but Congress needs to renew the program. And I know there's a lot of bickering back and forth about the size of the, of the next stimulus package, whether it's $3 trillion, what Nancy Pelosi originally wanted, to $500 billion, what McConnell wanted. And now they're talking about a bipartisan plan that they're all sort of looking at and starting to congregate around that is somewhere around $900 billion. But they literally today could renew and reappropriate that $130 billion in the Paycheck Protection Program if they would just come together and do that first. Um, which would help small businesses because every day we lose more small businesses. Um, according to Yelp, we've already lost 100,000 small business owners, small wow. businesses that will never open again. Wow. Um, and so we need to make that a priority because they generate most of the jobs. They do. They generate most of the jobs in, in communities across the country. And if you could, let's drill down on that point, because I think, you know, a lot of people who own small businesses recognize this. A lot of people who have been part of small businesses recognize this. But when a business is facing months of closure, when they've had to let some of some of them have had to let their employees go, these businesses might not be coming back. And I think, unfortunately, there's been this idea that's been out there that, you know, suddenly the lights are just going to turn back on and that business owners are going to be able to kind of open up shop in the same way. Talk about the mechanics of what happens when we actually lose small businesses, when they don't get the help that they need. Look, our, our small business owners are our neighbors, our friends, our relatives, our bosses. Um, all of us in one way or another um, are connected to small business owners, small businesses. We either shop there Mm -hmm. um, we work there or uh, we know someone who owns one. And when we lose that part of our community, it, they're generating most of the jobs, as I said, but it's, it's not the big box stores that are generating the jobs. They're going to be fine. Um, but our small business owners have been on the front end of the prosperity that we've seen over the last uh, three, four years under the Trump administration. But they're also on the front end of this pandemic as we saw these shutdowns and the worst hit 
has been our restaurants. I mean, right. if we don't start getting some relief to these restaurant owners, we're not going to have we're not going to have restaurants to come back to. They're not just going to be there. And again, I, I implore Congress to come together and just renew the Paycheck Protection Program, fight about the other stuff later, um, and, and get something done for the other, uh, you know, the other stuff done before the end of the year. But they could literally turn that light on, turn that spigot on, and, and release $130 billion today. Yeah, and Elaine, give, give our viewers a sense, because I think one of the things that's so frustrating is that in Washington, D.C., a lot of the big companies, if it's a big tech company, if it's a Fortune 500 company, they often have hired lobbyists who are walking around Capitol Hill, sometimes they're former politicians who are getting paid to advance their interests. But if you're a small business owner, if you're running a small restaurant, if you've got a small business of any kind, you haven't hired a personal lobbyist. I mean, talk Talk about how important it is to find ways to bring the voices of small businesses together so that you can speak with one voice to represent the millions of Americans who care about this. Well, uh, you know, that's exactly what we do um, at, the, at the Job Creators Network. We represent small businesses. We call them Main Street small businesses, mm -hmm. and there's 30 million of them in this country. They employ 60 million people. So you're talking about 90 million people. Right. Um, depending on the success of small business. We're a country of 350 million, so it's a pretty large percentage of our population, and that's before we get to their dependents. Right. Um, so, so small businesses, they're, they are, I, I refer to them as chief cook and bottle washer. Mm -hmm. um, they, they tend to do everything. They don't have floors of lobbyists and lawyers um, in Washington working for them, but that, that's what we do at Job Creators Network. We advocate for them for lower taxes and less regulations. Um, and better access to capital. And we try to elevate their voice in D.C. so that um, the folks in D.C. understand exactly what these small businesses are doing on the front lines, because that's where they are. They are on the front lines. Um, and we're seeing our economy come back at a record pace for the last six months. Today was Jobs Day. Mm -hmm. 245,000 jobs um, came back. And, and while it didn't meet the expectations that we thought we were going to see, um, we've seen almost 12 million jobs come back in just six months. It has been the fastest recovery on record. Um, and the unemployment went from almost at the height of the pandemic, almost 15 percent to um, under 7 percent. So it's been a pretty incredible recovery. But if we don't get some funds into the hands of small business owners, cash is king for them right now. We've got to get that money to them as soon as possible. Um, then then we're going to see more small businesses go under. You bet. And for people who are watching uh, the show right now who might own a small business or know somebody who does, uh, let them know, where do you recommend that they go to find the latest resources on how to make sure that their voice is actually being heard? I mean, they can go to our website. It's jobcreatorsnetwork.com. They can join the organization. Um, I work with small business owners across the country every day on helping them um, amplify their voice, having their voices heard from testifying in Congress on different issues related to health care um, or taxes, Social Security taxes, um, you know, to to talking about the issues um, on on media shows just like yourself on on how uh, different regulations impact their companies and their industries. And when people hear small business owners talk, it's very credible because they are on the front lines fighting this every day and trying to keep their doors open and make payroll and grow their business and take care of their family of employees because that's mm -hmm. what they are. 
Yeah, and, and Elaine, as you're as you're out there, uh, I know we've talked about the importance of getting getting relief to uh, to small business owners. Uh, what's your message to politicians who are thinking about again closing down small businesses across the country? Just in the last kind of forty seconds that we've got left here. Look, we've seen states uh, like California and New York um, implement much more stringent shutdowns. But if you think back, they didn't open to begin with very mm -hmm. much, which means their lockdowns didn't work to begin with. We know a lot more about this disease. We can protect um, the vulnerable populations, but we need to get our businesses open. We need to get our kids back to school. Um, that is the best thing we can do for this economy and for our society as a whole. We can be safe. We can wear masks. We can social distance mm -hmm. and we can protect the vulnerable. But we have to get our society open for the good of, of all Americans. Yeah, I, th I think I think people are feeling that absolutely uh, across the country. Well, folks, again, that's Elaine Parker from the Job Creators Network. She's a friend of the show. We will have her back on to talk about the economic impact of the coronavirus and other issues as we move forward. One thing that you can do if you're interested and you want to tell your friends about how to get this critical information that often isn't being covered by the mainstream media, send them out to justthenews.com and tell them that you are getting your information from Real America's Voice. We've got a great team here and we look forward to being back with you in just a minute. Stay right with us. Well, joining me now is the host of The Water Cooler, the man, the myth, the legend, <laughs> David Brody, is right here. He interviewed an election fraud whistleblower yesterday. It was a great interview, and we want to play a short clip from that interview now. Take a quick listen here. Clearly, your story has been told everywhere, but the mainstream media is ignoring it, by the way. You oh, I know, I know. And, and it's a shame on them, you know, a shame on them that you, you I mean, hey, I can only speculate, but I, maybe mm -hmm. take your hand out some on some people's pockets, you know. Um, mm -hmm. What I'll say, though, is I know there's other people like me out there, yep. I, and I know there are. Come forward. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. Don't be intimidated. And uh, I'm going to say tell everyone do the right thing. And your 10 second message to President Trump who's fighting this type of stuff? Uh, my 10 second message would be, uh, <laughs> hey, I'm here for you, brother. I'm here for you, man. Just trying to do the right thing, man. Just trying to do the right thing. Jesse Morgan, thanks. Thanks for speaking out. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. We're back in a moment with more show. David is right here. So David, look, yeah. you had a chance to sit down right in person with one of the whistleblowers. His message seemed pretty simple, which is that he's just trying to do the right thing. And yet the mainstream media is ignoring not just his testimony, but a lot of testimony from whistleblowers around around the country. What do, well, what do you make right. of this? And as a matter of fact, Eric, he's got about four or five million views uh, online of what he's been saying. And he had a press conference with uh, Phil Klein and some other folks with the Amistad Project. And yeah. so, uh, look, it's getting viral traction, but, you know, good luck trying to find it on CNN, MSNBC. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Fox News did cover it. Right. Uh, so, so he's frustrated, and, and I think there's a lot of folks in the conservative orbit that are frustrated. What I think is interesting about his story is that we're finally having an affidavit, if you will, uh, come to life, mm -hmm. uh, if you will. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we've heard all about these affidavits being signed here and under, you know, penalty of perjury. Great. Right. Yeah. Uh, 
uh, but to actually have someone come on camera uh, to actually speak about what they saw in a whistleblower, uh, more, more punch in that for sure. Yeah, and I, I thought it was powerful too. You saw Jesse Jacob come forward in Michigan. Again, mm -hmm. she'd signed an affidavit saying that she was told to backdate ballots, mm -hmm. to you know, ballots that should not have been counted. She was told to backdate them. She refused to do so. We'd covered her story. We'd talked about it. But then to have people actually come forward so that their fellow Americans can see them standing up and saying, look, this is what I observed. Mm -hmm. This is what happened. I do. I think it brings it to light. Yeah. Uh, the, other, the other thing I think is really important is this video coming out of Georgia. Wow. A lot of you might have already seen this. This is some pretty explosive footage coming out of Georgia last night. It's surveillance camera footage that shows election officials clearing the election counting room and then and telling everybody that they're going to stop counting ballots. But then they move in ballots. It's almost unbelievable. Check out the video here. At about 8 o'clock in the morning, we're going to roll this back and show it to you. There you go. So now they're going to start pulling these ballots out from under this table. This table, the black one, was placed there by the lady with the blonde braids at about 8.22 a.m. in the morning. So she put that table there. So the same person who's staying behind now, the same person who cleared the place out under the pretense that we're going to stop counting, is the person who put the table there at 8.22 in the morning. Yeah, I saw four suitcases come out from underneath the table. Yeah, upper right hand, you see the gentleman in, in the red. So he just pulled one out. So wh what are these ballots doing there, separate from all the other ballots? And why are they only counting them whenever the place is cleared out with no witnesses? is the question. So David, this is incredible footage. Yeah. I mean, this is surveillance camera footage showing them they went and they told the press to leave. Yep. They told all of the election observers to leave, said we're going to stop counting, and then they kept counting. Well, it's just it's just phenomenal to, to see the video, number yeah. one, really amazing. And, you know, it's funny because we've had people testify to say, hey, there were some folks that had their hand in the cookie jar, uh, and now we're seeing their hand in the cookie jar, potentially. Yes. I mean, you know, what in the world are these secret uh, suitcases doing under a table? Right. I, I mean, th this idea, Eric, that, you know, when you, when you have video like this, uh, it takes it to a whole nother level here. Yes. I mean, you know, you, you, you wonder what all of this is going to mean going forward. I'm not going to suggest it's a smoking gun, but boy, I know there are a lot of people that say it is a smoking gun. Uh, it's pretty close to a smoking gun. And you wonder when the media is going to pay attention to all of this. Yeah. I wonder if it all starts with Brian Kemp, the governor down in Georgia, mm -hmm. who, if he does call a special session of Congress, well, then all of a sudden the media has to cover that. You've yes. got a sitting governor calling a special session yes. of Congress on this. We'll, we'll see. But this is a big deal. Well, look, there's that, that classic phrase, seeing is believing. Mm -hmm. Now, right. we might be seeing something that has some explanation, but nobody's offered it yet. Well, not even Fulton County is offering it. Not even they, Fulton County. They put out County's. a statement and they didn't, they, yeah, they have, no, they have no answers. They're going to investigate. Right. I mean, when you look at this, you're seeing people in the dead of night mm -hmm. literally pull out boxes that were hidden and then count ballots. It just, it really, I think, highlights also how the mainstream media has been pushing this narrative. 
baseless claims, no evidence, et cetera. Like, right. look, there are all of these statistical anomalies. There are all of these election irregularities. There were hundreds of affidavits that went out there. You have people personally signing, swearing mm -hmm. to widespread fraud. But now you actually have video evidence that, again, we don't know. Maybe there's an explanation. But right now, that's what it looks like. Well, right. And, and what I've been saying uh, on the water cooler every day uh, is that it's not the Great Depression that we've heard about so much in history. It's now the Great Suppression yeah. by the media. They are suppressing this information because guess what, Eric? I mean, this is news. I mean, this yes. isn't Pizzagate. Yes. This isn't a conspiracy yes. theory. This is actual news that is happening where in real time, politicians, state law lawmakers are reacting to evidence that's being presented. How do you not cover it? You might not agree with it. Right? You might think everybody's Bozo the Clown. You might, whatever the case, who cares? It's not your job to decide what is news and what's not when lawmakers are actually involved in the process. Yeah, and you, have, you have a presidential election hanging in the balance. Absolutely. I mean, how uncurious can you be that you literally, they're wanting to look the other way instead well, of just figure out what happened Well, there. go win a Pulitzer Prize. I, I mean, you know, go, go, <laughs> right. go do your job. Right. I mean, it is the story of, let me think, not the decade or the century, maybe the millennia, yeah. if this actually turns out to be true. And well, we know a lot is out there, but you yeah. know, let's connect but the we dots We gotta dig here. into it. Yeah. Gotta get into it. So so anyhow, it, it has been, uh, honestly, journalism, I believe, is dead in America. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, it's forcing people out there, Americans, to choose sides. And that's a dangerous area right. where we're going to the point where, are you for team A or are you for team B? Are you for the Biden team or are you for the Trump team? Yeah. Is it hashtag not my president for Trump or is it for Biden? It is, it's a very dangerous place right yeah. now. Now, speaking of the mainstream media, I want to get your reaction yeah. to, to some of these CNN clips that have, that have been coming out. As you, as you know, like Project Veritas and James O'Keefe released new tapes last night from the CNN morning senior staff call. Now, this time, it's CNN President Jeff Zucker calling America's mayor, Rudy Giuliani, quote, a useful idiot. This is what he had to say. We're going to play that tape for you now. There's a term for what Rudy Giuliani is suspected of being, which is useful idiot. Uh, and then on the, the Rudy Giuliani story, this is a really important story. Uh, it gets tied to the Hunter Biden email disinformation campaign. That's the way we do this because it's all tied and part and parcel of one. I know Washington is, is working on putting that all together. From America's mayor to useful idiot. The real craziness is the client, not the lawyers, of course. Of course. And I, I wonder if we, if maybe we ought to be pointing that out at something uh, rather specifically. This is, you know, this gets back to Mary Trump, even. It, this is his pathology. We're back to, to a sociopath. I'm not saying we should use the word sociopath, uh, as we say, but, but what others who have dealt with him, Mattis, all of them, coming away and saying this man is crazy. That's part of the, that's the real story in some way. Right, well, I think you raised a good point about not just pawning it off on the crazy legal team, but the, but the client is the one who's directing that crazy legal team. Damn right. Well, David, what, what do you make of this? What do you make of this? I, I don't even know where to begin. It's like an orange man bad uh, conference call yeah. is really yeah. what it is. Right. Uh, 
Look, where, where do I even begin? I, I've been in the business over 30 years. I've yeah. been in these editorial meetings at the local and national level. Yes. Look, that, that, is, that is not the way editorial morning uh, conference calls are being mm -hmm. held. You don't wax poetic about any sort of figure, whether it be a lawyer or a president or a politician. You don't do it. Now, do, do people around the table have differing opinions on how a story should be covered? Absolutely. But, but to actually go on a diatribe, to go on a soapbox in the middle of an editorial meeting, uh, that, that just is not the standard. That is not how things yeah. are done. So, you know, shame on Jeff Zucker and shame on all of them uh, for, for, in essence, agenda journalism. And, and, Eric, I do believe we are in the age of the uh, correspondent. And we've talked about mm -hmm, this a little mm -hmm. bit. You know, uh, what happened to correspondence? You know, right. and that's why the, 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 uh, the American people don't have any trust in the media anymore because instead of a correspondent, you're a correspondent. What does that mean? It means you're a correspondent in a way by day, but at night you're going on, you know, some of these Anderson Cooper shows and Chris Cuomo, and you're becoming this uh, pundit who, who's giving their opinion. You know, opinion and facts have been totally meshed together to the point where the American people can't figure, I shouldn't say can't figure it out. They figured it out, but they, they shouldn't have to uh, go through hoops to figure out what's true and what's not. Yeah, I, I do think they figured it out because yeah, we have. now know that the journalism is the least trusted profession in the country. It's below Congress. It's below, and, and I think that is gotten, and I think in many ways that's because you've seen this, this deterioration in people's trust since 2016. Mm -hmm. right? Not that it was particularly high then, yeah. but, but you had years of the Russia collusion hoax. You had them yeah. ignoring the Hunter Biden story. And now, you know, I think people saw the kind of front what they put out but now you're getting a look behind the scenes this is how they're talking name calling you know talking about their agenda yep. and then they and then they just just go right there well david thanks so much for for joining us today again guys that's david brody host of the water cooler check it here real america's voice every weekday at 4 p.m eastern and we'll be back tomorrow night